Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, the podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. Jordan is absent once again, but we do have a guest that is uh, aligned with Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Say that. We've got Ali <laughs> exactly. back. He was on one of the podcasts, was it last year or uh, two years ago now? Yeah, I think like a year or two ago. I'm not entirely sure. What I think it was ago? two years ago. Yeah, it was some time mm. ago. Well. I'm Number happy three. to be back. Part three. Very happy. The to Brown be back. guys unite. Uh, Jordan's very busy doing shows. And actually, before we start this podcast, um, that's a good time to uh, announce that we're going to be taking a break from podcasting. We will definitely be back, but from about mid September to I would assume maybe mid or late January 2023, uh, I'll be taking a break from sex sales as well because Eliza is about to have a baby and. I thought it was a good opportunity to take a break from Neil and Jordan as well. It has been three years of us doing it. Uh, Jordan is doing a lot of shows right now. He's very busy as I am, and it's starting to get harder to uh, schedule one in every single week. So just got to look over a few things, um, maybe just scale back some of the things that we're doing. And uh, it'll definitely be back because I absolutely love this podcast. And yeah, we'll see how we go. And uh, as you know, if you are subscribed, all that money goes uh, straight to charity. So um, yeah, there won't be any podcasts, but that money will be going to a very good cause. But by all means, if you would like to um, pause that, I, I don't think you can pause it with the features I currently have on the website, but if you would like to cancel it, you're more than welcome to. Um, I'll be back next week, though, with more announcements regarding that. Uh, otherwise, thank you, everyone who came to my Brisbane show Last night, I'm filming this on the 22nd of August. Uh, it was a bit awkward. There were a lot of technical difficulties and we were filming it. So it was very awkward, unfortunately. But the audience was amazing and it was still a great show. Uh, apologies if you were uh, frustrated by some of those technical issues, just completely out of our control. Trust me, I was very frustrated by them too. But thank you to everyone who did come. Um, before we actually get into the meat of the podcast, we may as well do the uh, sponsorships up the top. This podcast is sponsored by Steady Freddy. Steady Freddy have a huge range of male sexual health products. They have got ball boost tablets. You want to boost your? Do you ever want to boost your testosterone? Yeah. What is that about? It's uh, just a tablet that you take. No, well, uh, no, they don't have uh, Viagra as far as I'm aware, but they have got the opposite. They've got a delay spray. So if you want to last longer, it's not really the opposite. It doesn't soften your dick, uh, but uh, if you want to. Uh, if if uh, not getting erection is is the problem, but uh, arriving too early is the problem. Yeah. We've got a good delay spray. So go to steadyfreddy.com, use the code Neil Jordan. You get 15% off. So it's the spray to keep the cum at bay. <laughs> Are you a two pump man? You need that tablet. I might use it. <laughs> but yeah, I don't look, th it doesn't hurt. You yeah, know, it does, it, it really premature does. ejaculation is just relative because if you last 30 minutes, but you want to last. An hour and thirty minutes. You take the spray, and you will. Do you know what the? Do you know why some people prematurely ejaculate and others don't? Is is there like a scientific reason for that? Um, probably many. I I can't tell. I'd you. imagine like if you were in hunter gatherer days, and if you came quick, that was probably an advantage. Yes, because especially if you weren't part of the tribe. Yeah, and. Uh, I don't know how hunter-gatherer societies work, but if there was uh, coercion involved, then it would definitely uh, be more helpful, I'm guessing. And you're free from pred predators? 
Yeah. <laughs> get out of there? Well, well you could quick. be a predator that does it really quickly is what I'm trying to say. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. That, that, well, I'm sure that still happens today, but... Well, that's probably probably not a good thing to to do with the sponsor. That was that was separate to the to the ad read. Okay, and <laughs> this is gonna be a good one. We're also sponsored by Crush Organics. Uh, go to crushorganics.com. Uh, they've got a huge range of CBD oil, CBD oil products. We've got the gummies. I just got some of those. They're great. They've got pain cream. They have got uh, the nighttime oil. They've got the platinum oil. You get forty percent off if you use the code Neil for that one. So N E E L. 40% off their giant range of CBD oil products. And if you haven't used it before, just read the labels and maybe start off with a very small amount. And other than that, come see myself and a group of wonderful comedians live. Uh, we do shows all over Sydney all the time, comedyuntamed.com. And we're going all over the place. Uh, there's a big Perth show coming up in, it's a while away, it's in December, but we'd love to see you all there. So come along to that. All right, five minutes in. Let's start the podcast. How you How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Neil. How have you been since I seen you last? Yeah, pretty good. Um, still working with Jordan, which has been, um, which is, dude. It's 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 a difficult thing. Like one of the best things in the world is working for your best friend, but it can also not be that great. <laughs> uh, it's great because, dude, like. My if my boss calls me and says I need you to do something straight away, I can tell him uh, I'm watching Seinfeld. Fuck off, <laughs> which most people can't do on their job. And he's okay, and he's okay with that. Yeah, he's okay with it because I think for him, as long as you get whatever needs to be done done, then he's he's pretty cool with it. Okay, and he, you you sell shirts and you you work with the merch area, right? Yeah. So what I um so Jordan's merch line is what we initially look. There was a whole history of how he was doing it with initially with someone else, and then you know he's got a very colorful career, and a lot of people find it difficult to stick with him, particularly when there's like multiple court cases happening. So it just kind of fell on my lap. Is there another one now? Are those, are those uh, uh, property developers coming after him? Uh, there's going to be. Look, I think that he's chosen that life. He's going to be like Alan Jones. He's gangster. always going to have something going. No, I think it's a. I think it was a brave and uh, logical move to start going after companies and corporations and not just the avatars for them in yeah. the Liberal Party. Yeah. Do you know, like, uh, someone was talking about this. They said there's three types of people. One, that before something really big is about to happen, they feel scared. Some people during it, like if there's a holdup or something, if there's a gun, like that's when you're panicking. And then there's the third kind that faces that panic after the the entire thing has been done. When you sit back and you're actually safe and you think about it, it's like, oh, crap, that could have gone really badly. He's the third kind. Okay, so what when, kind are you? I don't think I've ever been put in, like this sucks, but like I don't think I've ever been in that extreme adrenaline zone where you know if there's like a terrorist attack or something and you're there, that's when that would pop up. So I don't know how I would react in that, but usually I think I feel jitters before something happens, but during it's it just it's just adrenaline. Like then I'm not thinking about it at all. I think I'm the same. In a, in a really high stress situation like that, I've never also been in a in a life threatening situation or anything. But 
I've been staunched. I've been in- uh, I've been the subject of uh, unnecessary aggression, <laughs> and the adrenaline does kick in. I think I'm more fight than flight, but there's definitely flight in me. Yeah, I just weigh it up. It's it's really interesting how sometimes the fight kicks in, but sometimes the flight kicks in, and there's no definitive uh, reasons as to why that happens. But don't think there are reasons. If it's a if it's a huge guy, you're gonna you're gonna choose flight. And yeah, but like I've at least I've noticed in me, and I think it's a weakness actually, is the the fight tendency when you're in that when that adrenaline is being pumped. I'm almost agency less at that point where I might make some stupid decisions as in fight with someone that's much bigger than me and might kill me. But at that point, I'm kind of not in control, which is horrible. What I'm saying is you'd, I, you'd either want to be the person that gets scared before or you want to be the person that scared, gets scared after. But during is I'd, I'd like not to be that person. <laughs> that would suck. Getting scared after actually seems like the most rational and helpful response. Yeah, for sure. They're- Although you could then engage in very stupid behavior. Some, maybe the fear is actually something you should experience to make a rational decision in that moment. This is certainly true, particularly for normal people like us. But if you're a spy or if you're a military person and you've got heaps of training, then I think at that point your training kicks in. Yeah. I was watching a podcast with, um, they were interviewing a Marine who was in Afghanistan during the war. And at some point, uh, I can't remember what the circumstances were, but he was basically one person that was getting fired at by like 20 Taliban or something. And he, he just, he knew that he was going to die. There's no way he can survive this. He, and he does survive, but he was saying that at that point, it's weird. You think that people assume that when that situation happens, when death is almost inevitable, that you are, you're going to react in a really reptilian way. You're some sort of reptilian sensor is going to kick in and you're going to do that. But he was saying that it's weird. Your training kicks in. And even without knowing, even without thinking about what you're doing, you're doing exactly what the textbook has asked you to do. Wow. It's impressive. Would that just be a result of just years of training nonstop to the point where it's rote learned essentially? You just yeah. it's just muscle memory. You just the natural instincts kick in. Yeah, I think the natural instincts also know what is required at that point because you know the every part of your body is looking to survive. Yeah, and at that point, if there's a section of your brain that's saying, "I think going back to your training might help in this situation." then I think it it just, it does happen. But if someone doesn't have that, if they're just a normie like us and they're put in that situation, then yeah, it's it's a coin flip. Anything could happen at that point. Yeah. Well, you put the Marine on stage in a comedy club, they're going to freeze. <laughs> yeah, but the might. more you've practiced, practice makes perfect. Yeah, exactly. Which is why a in Marine, zone. yeah, a Marine and those, even though they're much well-trained compared to you on a stage, you would win. <laughs> You would definitely win. Yeah, yeah. Rel- <laughs> various realms of competence, aren't there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, muscle memory is interesting. And being in the zone is a really cool concept where you're just no longer consciously thinking about whatever actions you're undertaking. They're just happening 
naturally, uh, organically, and they are uh, they're, they're good actions for whatever the situation is. And that's where, yeah, discipline, training, repetition eventually pays dividends. Do you think you can work on that? Like as in can you, us as normies, can we actually do something in our day-to-day life that would help us in that extreme circumstance? Because that circumstance is so extreme, I, I don't know. But in a, say if a robber was threatening you or something without a weapon, mm. just becoming aggressive, there, there's probably things you can do that would help you in... Uh, yeah, more than just watching the Joe Rogan podcast. You've got to actually... Well, I was going to say that's it, that. but yeah, that's it. <laughs> sure. There's probably some other things as well. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's, it's those circums those the I, those ideas make me really scared just when i remember again another podcast that i was watching this guy who i actually kind of know uh is he's the son of a really really uh famous politician of pakistan who was assassinated by um the taliban cuz he was um he was supporting a christian woman that was accused of blasphemy and was given the death sentence, and so he come like, and his son was eventually after his dad's uh, death was kidnapped by uh, the Taliban. Actually, not the Taliban that he was kidnapped by. It's a very obscure difference, but like it's uh, by Uzbekistani militants in Afghanistan. And he was saying that one of the he's just like a normal. He, he grew up really rich, and he's a normal dude like us. But he was put in that extreme circumstances where. For five years when he was uh, he was kidnapped, he was only eating cold fat and uh, and like just pieces of bread, stale pieces of bread. That was his entire nutrition. And he was saying like and he went through some serious torture, like they were torturing him to take videos to send to his mom so that they could um, up the ransom and they could also get all of these different terrorists released that were in prisons in Pakistan. But anyways, what well, he was—he was an atheist. Like he was just. Oh. Sorry, so he's this is the son of a of a famous politician. Yeah, he's yeah. the son of a uh, of now assassinated politician. He was the governor of the largest province of Pakistan called Punjab, which is also in India. And so he was the son. His name's Salman Tasir, and um, so he was saying like he was just a normal dude. He was just he grew up a brat because his dad was filthy rich. He was. He was like Murdoch of Pakistan. Like he owned a lot of the channels and stuff. And he was saying that he grew up atheist, but he 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 realized at that point. Well, one of the things that they did was they gave him like heaps of ketamine while they were abducting him. So he was just tripping constantly. And it was the worst trip of his life because he was oh, constantly man. being beaten while he was tripping. And he had never taken drugs before that. Jesus. But anyways, the, the point of that was that he was saying that one thing that really helps you in those circumstances is believing in God. Because like once, if you think you're the only one, then you're gonna, you're gonna like die really quickly or go insane. Cause he's like, the insanity is also a big problem that you face. And though you, you will, you could go insane at any given point. Specifically believing in God or believing in a cause. It's anything, or a higher above, being. Above yourself. Yeah, mm. Being more than the material life itself. And he was saying that that's, because then you 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 take the agency away from you. This is happening to me not because of something I did. This is all the will of something supernatural. 
And once you have that realization, like it's not even that hard. Once you're put in that situation, you're going to do it at some point. So he had like, while he was tripping on forced ketamine, he was having these hallucinations that, you know, his dead father was appearing in front of him, telling him to like, you know, hold on to God and God himself was appearing. And shit. Is there increased uh, instances of religiosity in societies that experience turmoil? Is there a correlation For there? For sure, dude. I, I, don't, I, I don't have the evidence to back that up, but I'd be very surprised if that wasn't the case. Hmm. The next, uh, the next decades of the West will be, particularly America, I think will be interesting. They've already got a huge evangelical cohort and as the material conditions are seemingly deteriorating, I wonder if there will be a uh, large uptick in religiosity. I was looking at some stats. Apparently there already is. Like, uh, you know how... Uh, how much of that is immigration, I wonder, because if with all those South American immigrants I'm assuming would be heavily Christian. There's also a methodology issue over here. So they always say one of the biggest, the, the most growing community are atheists, right? Yeah. But that's because um, the forms that they give out is like, what's, like, what religion do you follow? Buddhist, Christian, blah, blah, blah. And then non-affiliate. And so a lot of people are increasingly choosing non-affiliates. But if you ask those people, do you are you certain there is no God? Which is they probably will say, "I'm not certain." They, yeah. That would lump agnostics. That will lump normal atheists, and it would also lump in people that are religious, but they don't necessarily subscribe to any one particular religion. Yeah, yeah, it's a spectrum. In Australia, you know what's interesting? I was looking at ABC released some some interesting stats. If you are Protestant Christian, you're most likely an atheist at this point. If you were historically Protestant, oh, right, right. If you're, you're most likely yeah. an atheist now. So, so Catholicism seems to have... Uh, they're still strong. All the immigrants, their religions yeah. are still strong. Okay. Uh, it's only the old-timey Aussie that was uh, Anglican is now kind of abandoning religion. Interesting. Why do you think that is? The Anglicans and the Protestants, as far as I am aware, I guess had a looser interpretation of the, not not a looser interpretation of the Bible per se, but they didn't have to conform to the norms of a higher institution. Yeah, their system. The Catholic Church. Yeah, their system's pretty anarchic as well. But I think that doesn't, because look, there's heaps of the evangelicals of the US, they're Protestants. Yeah, they're so either that extreme yeah, version or they're borderline atheists. But I think in Australia's case, I think it's a minority and majority thing. They were always kind of the dominant culture, dominant like they didn't they didn't feel any uh, their they didn't feel that their culture or religion was threatened in any which way. Whereas if you were Catholic, I could imagine in the sixties and the fifties and seventies in Australia, Catholics were probably looked at as like you know outsiders. Yeah. And so I think when you're a minority and you feel your culture is threatened, I think you preserve it a lot more than if you're the dominant culture. No insecurities there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you can see that outside of the realm of religion as well. Yeah, for sure. In everything. Culture, like that's why immigrants, you know, like immigrants come here and they're sometimes m more practicing of their culture than even people that, they left when they left those countries. Yeah, that you look through, say, two to three generations of some of the European immigrants that came here in the 50s, and they are in many ways more conservative than the people who are of the same, you know, lineage. Yeah. 
in their home country, in their native country. For sure. I think that another aspect of, particularly in Australian context, is that um, the Anglicans or the Protestants that moved to Australia were already pretty secular because they belonged to the Church of England yeah. and the Church of England had already sort of, you know, secularized their society. So they came from a group of people that was already pretty secular. Whereas the Puritans went to America. So Puritans they went to the, America. Yeah. And their sort of history is is more deist, you know, like their yeah. founding fathers were kind of different. They weren't the same as, you know, the British ruling class. They were the religious extremists of England, as far as I'm aware. The ones, ones that went on the, to the, on the US? Mayfair, yeah. on the um, Mayflower and things like that. But they that. also and went into a community that they didn't feel that they were the dominant culture. The dominant culture was like so sporadic because everyone was different and your founding fathers were these quirky characters from their perspective. Like they were more interested in like scientific discovery and like understanding different religions. And they're like, what are you doing? Like, we know what we believe in. Like, stick to that. Yeah, so it wasn't as homogenous as the yeah, I don't uh, white immigrants to Australia who were primarily uh, Protestant. And came to, into a culture that was pretty much the same <laughs> from what they left. Yeah. In America, there was like, it's huge. And there was like so many different types of people. And then the whole ethos of the country is based on, you know, we're a land of immigrants. People can be anything they want as long as they believe in the constitution, they're Americans. Whereas ours was like, yeah, but you also got to believe the queen. You've got you've got to accept her as the monarch. You've also got to understand that we are a Christian society. That was that kind of uh, language was avoided in the U.S. So I think it, if you're a Christian nut is and you go to the U.S., you feel more threatened than you would have had you come to Australia. Right, and so then you're saying the the reason there's a or potentially the reason that there's much uh, heavier and significant religiosity in America is because they were constantly under threat. Yeah, and and the other thing is you it's know just, how because you, it's now a much more religious society, even just sure. the aggregate of it is much more religious than Australia. One, uh, yeah, one hundred percent. It's there's also you know how you were saying that. Protestants don't have like this Catholic mega structure church. They don't have like a guy that has to, that tells them what to do. That's a really good thing because for the reason that you mentioned that you can, you know, you can be yourself. You, there's no old man in Rome that's telling you, no, nah, this is the right, but good and bad, good and bad. You get the crazy preachers in, in the Southern US. Exactly. It's, 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 but the anarchy of it, because there's no centralized authority, you can come up with some quirky idea and there's no one to tell you, yo, you're wrong about this. This is this is crazy. Because there's no pope that can... That's actually the biggest problem with Islam. Uh, Bin Laden was a crazy character because he started issuing fatwas, which is something that he couldn't have done because he wasn't, you know, a, a mufti or the ones that are like these clerical chiefs that, are, that go through the study. They're like judges. So... If you're in Islamic theology, you can only give a ruling if you're a judge. And a judge is called a mufti. Bin Laden was none of that. He was just a, a, a revolutionary fighter who was fighting the Soviets and had heaps of money. And he was issuing these fatwas, uh, which would, be, would, would have been considered heretical. But today, because of the anarchic structure, there's no Islamic pope that can tell him what you're doing is insane. Everything goes. Well, he believes that. You might believe something else, you know. But if he if he was a Catholic, 
The church could tell him, what is wrong with you? You can't do this. You can't kill innocent people. You also can't issue fatwas, dude. Like you've got no qualification. You've just, you went to, you've studied engineering. It doesn't work like this, but what are you going to, that's the problem with anarchic structures. Mm. Good and bad. Mm. Yeah, it's seeming that there's just always going to be positives and negatives for there being a rigid hierarchy yeah. that maintains order and, and, and the rules of the given ideology. And without that, you can explore very interesting ideas and new variations and that could, you know, bring about a better version of the theology. But more likely than not, you're... you're Creating a lot of cults that you, but are I regressive. Think one thing that I've noticed, sorry. Well, that's also the risk you have to, that's, that's I guess, the trade-off there where, you know, when you talk, maybe if you liberalize the religion, mm. you are opening it up to all these breakaway cults that are just not at all the word of God that it, at least what it once was understood as. Yet out of those 100 breakaway churches, they could be the one that then has has perfected it or just moved further towards perfection. The one, the one thing that I think every religion needs for that to happen is that the text itself needs to be reinterpreted over and over again. Because, you know, like the word of God, this is the problem with these American Protestants and even the Muslim fundamentalists. They have the same exact issue. They believe in a really literalist interpretation of their religion. They think that whatever was written in the book, which might have been written, you know, thousands of years ago, is supposed to be followed exactly the way it was meant to be. Now, what they mean by exactly is whatever at that point they think that the, the words mean, right? Because obviously you wouldn't be able to tell. Society changes, language changes and everything. But believing in a really literalist approach, this often comes with these anarchic structures. When you don't have a higher authority that you can depend on, you try to look for guidance within the text itself. And that can create huge problems because, you know, people 2000 years ago were saying ridiculously stupid shit. Not stupid shit, like things that we would consider really outdated now. Uh, uh, and, you know, we've, we've all read like Dawkins and all those people. There's plenty of examples of ridiculous stuff in texts. And so, but they can't do anything because their entire ethos is based on the idea that we have to believe in this literalist version of it. But if your, uh, if your religious school was something of, it's not the words on the paper, it's the interpretation. The person brings the, uh, what, the meaning of it to the text itself, then you've got a, more, a less rigid structure. So you can be like, okay, they might have said, you know, kill your neighbor if he works on Sabbath, but they really just meant don't do sad, but like don't work on. They didn't actually mean kill your people. And it helps if you've got a higher structure within your religious organization that can help you achieve that. Otherwise, you're going to have really, really good people that are practicing religion in, you know, completely acceptable ways. They're doing amazing stuff for humanity. And then you're going to have people that want to kill anything that they feel is against their religion. But that higher structure will have a significant degree of concentrated power. And if that structure becomes corrupt, that many would say the Catholic Church has become. For sure. That infects the entire religion across the globe rather than, say, one sect of Protestantism becoming corrupt and then there being very clear means to branch off and 
improve upon that. 100%. I, because, you know, and the Catholic Church is definitely an example of that where, you know, certain things, the, the, it, the institution did get pretty corrupt. But the problem is there's always going to be a powerful institution that's dictating things that you have to do. So if it's not a religious church, it might be uh, a liberal government that was in power for 10 years and kind of got too comfortable and started doing some pretty dictatorial stuff. Now, what do we do? Do we get rid of governments in general? You have to live with some sort of authority and you have to essentially from a bottom up movement, you have to force them to, you know, not be to uh, not be corrupt. But I think the idea that if you get rid of authority, then people would behave in a better manner. I think in some instances they would, but in some instances they will become monsters. It also depends upon how the the positions within that structure of authority are determined, the culture of the the vanguard that is leading any given structure. There are myriad other factors at play, but I agree that, well, people are naturally hierarchical and there will always be some degree of submission to a greater authority. And there will always be unscrupulous actors moving uh, through uh, a hierarchy, particularly if at the top there is significant amount of power. And then so how do you how do you avoid that? How do you ensure that it's truly the well, best that rise to the to become the Pope? Well that is that is the most difficult question that has existed for centuries now. But you know it, a few hundred years ago, our leaders decided that democracy was the best way to ensure that. Where if you don't concentrate power in a few hands, but you relegate it to everyone, then the collective interest will never lead to that extreme corrupt uh, institution. It will regulate. But then in certain instances, even that doesn't work, dude. Like Hitler was elected, you know. So... There's flaws in everything, but one of the ways to ensure it is is de democratic. Essentially, that you you don't concentrate power in a few hands, but you let the majority decide how the minority will function once they're in powerful positions. No guarantee, but you know that's one of the ways. Well, I it seems to be a, a, a better system than yeah. some of the ones that um, were enacted before. But you know, there's the, the it's art. It's not as efficient, though. There's it's it's all it's contextual, isn't it? Because some would say during the pandemic, the more authoritarian abilities that the Chinese government had were actually beneficial within that context of a global pandemic. But a, a, a democratic society was, you know, sort of lagging behind in how efficient it could be. That that is true, but you know. This is a slippery slope because okay, even if you look at the the Chinese um so the Chinese response to COVID, it was exactly how if an expert had infinite power, they would do what China did, which is stop entertaining people talking about what is right and what are the ethical just lock them up if you need to. But the problem with that is, and this is one of the issues with like not having a democratic society, look at China today, they're still doing lockdowns. Because it proved so, it, it worked for them in when there were no vaccines, they looked at the rest of the world that was like in chaos 
particularly the US, and they're like, we've got this system right. This is the way to do it. You zero COVID uh, cases is the best way to do it, which was fine then, but they're still doing it because they're there's because their system is so their power is so centralized that they've they're now living under this impression that whatever they did before because it worked they have to keep going at it and as a result their economy is suffering a lot when i don't think it needs to but now you can't do anything about it because most people most people in china wouldn't want that to happen but they can't do anything about it you just have to like now live in this perpetual lockdown because your leader thinks it's the best strategy. And he's one guy. Okay, maybe it's not one person making that decision. Maybe it's 300 people that made that decision. That's still a ridiculously low amount for, you know, a billion people. And then they'll always back themselves, whatever the given authority is, when they can even objectively see that whatever measures they're taking aren't necessarily the most effective or positive. Mm. People in power and institutions which have power will very rarely backtrack and say well, we've got something wrong there they'll yeah because like, anything uh, further solidify their position they're not wrong either they're looking at it from a very mathematical point of view that if covid like you know spreads then we're gonna have an x number of deaths what is our goal reduce the number of x so hence we will follow the policy that reduces that but in normal democratic societies, you could go like, yeah, okay, I like where this, I understand where you're going, but there's a cost. You're not looking at Y over here. And that cost might not be quantifiable as the X can be. If there's an outbreak, they can actually pretty accurately guess how many people are going to die, depending on, you know, the population demographics of the place, the health stats or whatever. But then the Y is unknown. And from the Chinese leadership looks at it like some mathematical expert would. It's like, okay, why is not quantifiable? The premier, the the most important uh, thing for us is to minimize debts. So we just keep going with the lockdowns. Where if it was a democratic society, you're like, okay, we can't explain what why is, but we know it's important. So we're not going to let you do this anymore. In certain cases in the US, they didn't even want to do it when they had, when they didn't even have the vaccine. We are somewhere in the middle where we go, okay, it was important when you don't have the vaccine, but once you get the vaccine, then it's not important and you're being dictatorial. But in the US, I don't know, they believe in freedoms, I suppose, a lot more than us. They were like, even when they didn't have the vaccine, you don't have a right to do that. So it's just like, you know, choose your devil. Was that X value as clear as they made it out to be, though? Because I, they, it's so hard with the information that was out there on the internet, and by no means have I done any sort of... Extensive research on this, but you do hear studies that point to differing narratives that say the lockdowns were not as effective as they were um, claimed to have been, and masks were kind of basically pointless. And there were very mixed messages from the health authority in America, and they're not necessarily releasing a lot of the data. Um, so there's just Enough there for me to just raise eyebrows and just maybe doubt the, uh, the you know the validity and the expertise of some of the so-called experts. But I, do, I would assume that people in those uh, health authorities that were making some of these decisions, or at least uh, influencing Western governments, had a similar approach to 
the Chinese government in that they saw it as an equation, something that they had studied their whole life, but they were just laser focused on this particular field of epidemiology and or virology or what it, whatever it may be. So it was likely difficult for them to take into account other, uh, all the other uh, issues that people might, may have been facing and, and also just the philosophical burden of various dis- decisions that they may have made. Yeah, no, absolutely. And because it's not their job. They're they're not meant, they're completely different people. They literally have these equations, like you said, that this is going to happen if you do this. Uh, if you if you do A, then this is going to happen. If you do B, then this is going to happen. And, you know, those equations were sort of consistent all over the world. The same data was because they were sharing it all over the world. So the Chinese uh, scientists or health professionals had the same sort of equations as yeah. the Australian ones and the Americans one, American ones. So it was a myopic equation to look at something that would have had a holistic effect on a country. You know, you had to also look at the social costs, the mental health costs, the economic costs, and weigh that up with the potential debts. One hundred, and which is why I was always of the opinion that these experts shouldn't make these decisions. It's not their job. Like because the holistic thing that you're talking about, they have no idea what that holistic thing is. They're going to make some horrible decisions if they stick on that equation, which is why I always thought that this idea that politicians would come on press conference, like we're just listening to the experts. We're doing what the experts are saying. It's like, yeah, but if, if things go wrong, I'm going to blame you, not the expert. It's your decision. I think the politicians incentive was to stay elected and they want to, uh, shift the blame to the experts if things went awry and if people were frustrated which they were a lot were mm-hmm. and so then gladys or whoever it may be scott morrison can say oh but i'm just following the experts yeah those are their political considerations but i think there's like a, a philosophical reasoning for me behind it as well as like the idea that you can relegate these decisions to a health professional is antithetical to our entire system our system gives people the authority to elect you to decide these meta uh, decisions. Now, you can get advice from whoever you want, and we hope you get advice from experts. But at the end of the day, you have to make that call because they know the value of X, but you also know the value of Y. And so you need to exercise your own judgment. Yeah. It's a difficult job for anyone. You could argue the collective judgment of the populace is the value of Y. Yeah. And, and I think that's why in, in a country like Australia, it kind of worked pretty well. Now, the, the, what you were saying is that the, the mortality rates and, and whether COVID was actually affecting this many people. I don't know a lot about that because I'm not yeah, no, me neither. A, a scientist on this. But having said that, look, if you believe that the mortality rate was 0.2% instead of 0.3%, a 0.02% instead of 0.03%, okay, I'll believe that. If you say 0.01%, I'll believe that too. But it just changes like a mathematical number. It's still going to kill a few people. You can almost... I could sit there and look at like the Australian population and see if the mortality rate is 0.02%. You judge how many people are going to die. And it it was often pretty close. There'd be about 0.02% people that would die. Most of them, like the overwhelming majority of them, are going to be old people that were going to die in a few years anyways. 
but this is what might kill them in this instance. And then there were people that had like immune diseases and they had people that were like generally unfit or whatever. If you're a younger person, it's most likely not going to do anything to you. And so there's whatever you take in these factors and then you make a judgment of like, okay, if we don't do a lockdown, this many people will die. If we do a lockdown, this many people will die. Now, this is assuming that once you do a lockdown, everyone's going to listen to you. In the U.S., the Fauci was saying that the problem with the U.S. Well, he, I think he was like on the ABC or something uh, during our lockdowns, and he was and we uh, they were like discussing how the responses have been different. And he was saying that the biggest problem that we have is that people don't listen to us when we say there's a lockdown. You can say there's a lockdown, but people just don't care. So it's like so then all our numbers are irrelevant. So I can't tell you that if there's a lockdown, it saved this many people because only about 30% of the people are actually listening to me. So what are you going to do? So the data kind of skews over there. But like, I'm glad that that stuff is over with because there were so many. It, it led to a lot of conspiracy rabbit holes too, which I myself have had gotten into. Yeah, well, it was hard to tell what was a conspiracy and what wasn't. Yeah. And it still is to, in, in from what I can gather. Uh, but it was a very interesting exercise in, in social psychology in people built an entire identity out of being opposed to not not, not even lockdowns wearing a mask or not <laughs> <laughs> then there's like, surely there should be data out there as to the efficacy of a mask i'm sure there is but like that data is like it, it's it's debated amongst people it's like oh this is wrong because of this reason or this is right because of that reason Surely they can control for that. You put 100 people a, in a room, you get 50 of them to wear a mask, 50 of them to not. And and people and people do have the, that data too. Mm. But, you know, internet is the wild, wild west, you know. Sure. You never know exactly what you're reading is correct or whatnot. But I'm saying if you're, a, if you're like a held bureaucrat in Australia, you know exactly what it is. Yeah. Or at least you think what you know is correct, you know. Like that whole Wuhan lab stuff. Have you looked into that recently? I heard something came out. Uh, there was a there was a inquiry into it or something, and they found that it was almost certainly from the wet market. It went from a human to uh, an animal to yeah, a the, human. I I read a bit of it. So amongst the scientific class in the world, now recently. They're all there's a consensus that it came from the uh, it came from the the wet markets in Wuhan because they did like they looked at the really initial cases and they tried to work out and they all kind of the epicenter of it was the Wuhan lab, the uh, the wet markets as opposed to the lab and so they were saying that if it came from the lab there would need to be exceptional circumstances for them all to congregate again at the wet market so they deduced that it is highly probable that it came from the wet markets but most there's you can ask people in australia or in america and some people will still say or most people will still say that the wuhan lab theory is correct if they believed in it before this inquiry report came out but people are just skeptical of uh any any authority that says we have the final say on this so Whoever did this report, I what is it? It was the American government. 
Yeah, no one can now, even I have a skepticism. I would want to know, well, where did the funding come from? Who's funding the, you know, who has lobbied the, the politicians that approved this investigation? There's so many other questions I would need answered before I can absolutely say with certainty this uh, study is something I, I, it definitely moves me in that direction to say, mm. yeah, it probably came from that animal, mm. whatever it was, the pangolin. But there are just too many other variables at play where there are conflicting interests where people may not even know they have conflicting interests based on where they get their their funding or their the culture they subscribe to or the identity they may have. And coming back to what we were saying before, as imperfect as a, as democracy is in that people have such a variety of expertise and intelligence on whatever the field is that we may be voting on, there is something to be said about the collective wisdom of the masses. And let's say a government even is objectively, let's, we look forward and we say that government objectively did the, the right, was doing something that was overall beneficial for the population. If the population has voted against them or has uh, sort of shown at the ballot box that they don't have full faith, there, there are other factors at play that should be looked into. And what often is ascribed in situations like that is people are stupid. When, you know, why have the population lost trust in institutions? Mm. What has been missed by these so-called experts in the way they analyze various people and groups and how uh, our human nature plays into, uh, you know, our insistence for tribalism and so many concerns that I think could have been explored um, in understanding the phenomenon of COVID and the human response to it. There's also like a lot of cultural aspects that are associated to this now, which sort of uh, muddies up the entire picture for us. Because if it was something that had like no cultural relevance, if it was like how a cornea behaves under different lights, there's there's not going to be a huge debate about it. There's going to be like settled, you know, uh, so there's going to be some sort of scientific discovery and then they're going to come out with the results. It's going to get peer reviewed and it'll be accepted by most people. But because this particular issue became, you know, so cultural and so political, um, I don't think we can ever get to a point where most people will agree on it. But I think, and I, again, I might be wrong, but I think for most scientists, it's settled now. And there are there are ways you can actually look into it, like who funded this, where did the data come from, and all. And people have because it's peer reviewed. There's a lot of scientists that have looked into it. And no one can definitely even say today that, you know, it didn't come from the Wuhan lab. But they're saying it's it probably didn't. And I'll accept it. Yeah. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. Oh, I'm just going to base like it on that. like... Yeah. But I, I just wouldn't uh, blindly accept things that come from, a, you know, an institutional authority. Yeah, for sure. Like, I understand. I'm that. more trusting the, the scientific authority than, mm. say, the governmental authority or the corporate authority. Yeah, because they have a track record of lying to us and everything. Yeah, true. Fair. Yeah. That's, a, that's a reasonable perspective. Yeah. I'm sure you could find throughout history where the scientific consensus was wrong or there was a sort of corrupt culture within science. I mean, look, well, I mean, the Nazis used science yeah. to, uh, when science becomes, science is obviously a rational pursuit, but it doesn't take into account uh, things that could be tangential to the consequences of their discoveries. For example, how people will act, how they will react and 
what the sort of long-term cost of that Y variable is. There are other things at play, which like we said, it's not really the realm of science. It's the realm of of politics and of maybe philosophy even this became you know became a sort of utilitarian uh versus you know just a, a principled argument of do we save these these people here that will inevitably die if we don't lock down but what are the uh what is the total cause of suffering that occurs if we don't do that and then how do we weigh those things up that's not a scientific question. That is a philosophical yeah. question. And and to be fair to you, even so, certain scientific answers can be completely wrong. Like Aristotle came up with the idea that if you throw, if you roll a ball on the ground and it eventually stops, why does it stop? So now we know there's an idea called friction, air resistance, which makes it stop. The scientific consensus, which was pitched by Aristotle, was the ball gets tired. That's why it stopped. And for generations, people believe that as scientific fact. And then later on, and who knows, maybe, you know, a hundred years from now, the idea of friction was slightly wrong that we believe in today oh, I, as well. I have no doubt that in a hundred and then let alone, you know, thousands of years from now, we'll look back and just laugh at the idiotic ideas we had. Yeah, but I think the the critical, and this is something that we, we can all agree on, is that the way we decided that the ball stops is not because it's tired, but it's because of friction is based on evidence and scientific pursuit. So they had a reasoning as to why Aristotle was wrong and why they're right. As long as we follow that methodology, then it's perfectly reasonable. Sure. Yeah. yeah. No, without a doubt. So if you think that if, if someone believes the Wuhan lab theory, then like, if there is credible evidence for it, then we will all switch our opinion. Absolutely. And like when it comes to I maybe sort of less significant scientific pursuits or pursuits that maybe don't have a profit, you know, there wasn't a lot of profit to be made by what they call it, Pfizer or whatever it may have been. So I don't want to sound like I'm delving into a conspiracy here, but it is fair to presume that they're, you know, it's in that corporation's best interests to have as many people take that vaccine as possible, have as many governments buy that vaccine. And I do think it's fair to assume that even if consciously, whether it's conscious or subconscious, the executives of that corporation would be trying to act in a way to, uh, you know, encourage that. And if that so happens to be um, doing things in a very, you know, impl implicitly trying to sway the the uh, people in authority to move towards a certain outcome i don't think they wouldn't do it no and they do do it like if you listen to the pfizer ceo you think that if you don't get your fifth covid booster you will die they like well, he, yeah. he is constantly coming out and saying how it's important critically important for countries to mandate the fifth booster you know there's definitely an economic incentive for the guy, but I think you can like you can you can minimize this by trying to avoid monopolies as much as you can. The the what part of the reason why this happens is because first of all, like these pharmaceutical companies are they require huge amounts of investment. Yeah. So automatically, if there's only a few people that are going to be able to do this, that can source that kind of investment. And once that investment is put into it, and particularly in like things like COVID, 
Then they come up with a vaccine that's patented. So not on, they, no one else can sell their vaccine. So only they can sell their vaccine. So now you've given immense amounts of power to this one corporation. And they're going to do some shady shit. Yeah, I've given them legal immunity. And, you know, this is also something that has occurred over time where some governments would just have the facilities to be able to produce that themselves. I mean, look, there'd be problems if a maybe just the government was producing it. I'm sure there'd be an array of problems there as well. But it, de it definitely wasn't an ideal solution to have this, you know, oligopoly of corporations competing to not only have people choose which vaccine they take, which, how, you know, competing over which government is going to purchase those vaccines yeah, that was on behalf of us. And it was a bizarre, such a bizarre period in human history. And sure, it could, it could have been a lot worse. It was not a very lethal disease yeah. at all. Thank God, dude. Like uh, people, I remember when like, even at the height of it, I was always bringing this perspective. People were like, dude, this could have been so much worse. Yeah. Like this airborne disease as a fatality, even without vaccines of like one to 2%, there are diseases that have 60 to 70%. Ebola had like 80%. This could have been much worse. So like, it's this isn't as bad as things seem, you know? No, not at all. The most vulnerable die, and as harsh as it sounds, they were going to die at some point anyways. If it wasn't this, it would have been something else. Because, you know, there's the age aspect of it. You can't, you can't be immortal. And if you're severely immunocompromised, then, you know, it, that's why people say the flu can kill you, you know, because it, it really can in those circumstances. So it could have been much worse. I yeah. agree with that. Well, I probably had a lot of bias that I may not even be aware of being one, a young guy who's quite fit and healthy that his career depended upon being able to travel and perform in venues to yeah. uh, a lot of people. So it was uh, significantly affecting someone like I was bearing the, uh, like a large degree of the costs of those uh, measures for sure. So I'm sure that has swayed my opinion on it. And look, I got all the vaccines and everything, and I and I locked down as well as I could. Um, went on a couple of walks, but you were allowed to do. I mean, some of those rules were also strange. I was able to see my girlfriend, but couldn't see my family, and just um, a few things there that were, you know, that's a bit yeah, like go <laughs> go root your girlfriend, but you can't see your mom. You know, yeah. don't do that. It was definitely a crazy time, but I'm I'm thankful that it's over. But you know, it's not over yet because it has these effects no, on the all. global economy and it's a huge hangover. Countries, particularly fiscally constrained countries, like well, the inflation, all of this, all of the economic calamity that we're facing today can be well, a lot of that is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but arguably the COVID set off a chain of events that then one hundred was was paranoid the whole pandemic by all accounts yeah and you're looking at like these uh countries like starting from south asia where sri lanka defaulted yeah um then you had pakistan which is on the verge of default it would have defaulted if it wasn't a big enough country where you know powers that be were like this this country cannot default because 
if this country collapses, there's going to be a like we'll forget ISIS how bad this could get. Um, even a country like ba- Bangladesh, yeah, the nukes, all of that Bangladesh, which is supposed to be a, a miracle economy. It's like uh, they've increased their exports substantially in the last two decades, and it was being touted as like an example in the developing world of how to run affairs. Has applied to IMF for a bailout because, you know, one of the big things that happened with inflation was that our demand, like first world demand, just reduced. People weren't spent, and most of the reduction came from like unnecessary shit that we didn't need. You know, like buying that extra shirt from Kmart. It was like the, and that was what poor Bangladesh was exporting mostly. And yeah. so they yeah. literally they had they they're now defaulting as a result. I've heard it's just going to get worse. It's so long as the war. I mean, they've let a few uh, cargo ships out apparently, but there's such a delay now, and many of many of the uh, I don't know if it's grain or whatever Ukraine is a massive exporter in. Those fields have been all but decimated. So for a long time, that global supply is not going to be what it was. Yeah, and the food. countries that were sort of net food importers are going to really struggle especially those kind of poor countries developing nations yeah. uh, north africa i've heard and, and sort of a lot of africa is going to struggle and this the you know the the safeguard the stocked supplies are running out it's a double whammy because in terms it's the grain so your actual food source and then the pesticides, which uh, Ukraine and Russia both are big producers of, which is something that you need for your grain to grow indigenously too. The supply has been like it's it's pretty it's dramatic. And now the even the grain export, the grain and pesticides export has become so politicized where Russia and Ukraine are using it as bargaining tools with the other with other countries to get favors. So they're like, okay, if you want grain to grow to Africa. You've got to do this and this for us. And you're like, okay, you do realize that your your bargaining tool is keeping like millions of Africans from dying. Like this, this is this is what it's getting down to. And you can't the the other aspect of it is the the combination of uh COVID, uh Ukraine war, and climate change. Because country a lot of these countries in Africa. Part of the reason why they're net importers of food is because huge swaths of their land are completely uninhabitable. Like, even if people are living there, they cannot grow anything over there. Mm. These were areas that were already, they were they were dry areas that would get sporadic rain, but it was just enough to sustain some kind of crop. And now that's gone. And they have huge population curves where their birthright is not decreasing. They're, exactly. And, and they need more food. And their, their birth rate decrease. is actually increasing africa is yeah. going to be the biggest population uh provider for the world for the next 40 50 years yeah. the only one in fact because you know it's all it's all intermingled so what happens is that the reason why you have really high birth rates is because you live in a largely agrarian society yeah. where you know you've got to work on farms and the kids there's, are free labor there's no contraception there's and high infant mortality rates so yeah. if you're a couple that live in rural part of uh, Senegal and you want to raise a family, not only do you need workers to work on your farm, but you also need to make sure that you get some extra kids because at least two or three are going to die. And you know that they will. So 
the birth rate just balloons up as a result. What the biggest factor that reduces birth rate, which happened in the first world and is now happening pretty much in most of the third world as well, aside from Africa, is just urbanization. Yeah, urbanization, industrialization, and um, educating women. Yeah, which all kind of comes with urbanization in a way. Yeah. Have, have you looked at Peter all... Zeehan? Yeah, I just listened to a podcast um, he was on recently. He's great. Yeah, he's and he talks about population a lot and how... It's become a big um, topic of interest among a lot of the... Podcasters I listen to, the uh, uh, blogs that I read, it's uh, a big factor that China and Russia will be facing in the next 20 to 30 years. Everyone's going to be facing But this. those two in particular. And yeah, the entire first world, Western Europe's population is set to decline, um, even with migration. Uh, Australia's population is below replacement rate. It's, it's increasing due to migration. America's is below uh, replacement rate. Some have even said that the whole Roe versus Wade fiasco was actually a cynical ploy to increase birth rates. Birth rates. But I can't see, you know, be interesting. But um, certainly is a big issue. And like, and you know, this is this is like the first. Is it? Is it? That's the question. Because Zelhan thinks it is. Yeah, it, look, if we look at how the economy, how we make money today, how we accumulate surplus, it's absolutely critical. But if we talk about this alternate reality in the future where, you know, we dramatically change the way we live, then maybe it's not as important. But currently, it's a death sentence. It means that we're going to be in a perpetual recession. Yeah. So right now, in countries like America and Australia, you're right, most of the population growth is coming from migration. Because if you get rid of the migration... We're all declining. But the countries that are the biggest source for this migration they have are heading rates. to the same rate. So yeah. they're just behind us. And we're about 30, 40 years ahead of the third world in this. And migrants that uh, they'll often come to Western countries and then not necessarily have many kids themselves. Yeah. Yeah. In East Asia, it is. I mean, some of the estimates in countries like Singapore and China, is, it's some said it's even below one. Per child, uh, per woman, and that's. I, I can't see how that isn't catastrophic to some degree in, in ten, twenty, thirty years. Particularly because like the the population that's aging is in such a large number compared to the ones that are going to be paying their taxes to keep them, is that even in the short run this is pretty bad. Let's forget about, you know, the long run of, you know, a perpetual recession, decrease in aggregate demand, decrease in us producing stuff. Just the idea that there's going to be 10 old people and uh, I think about six to seven young people that are going to be paying for, which is the opposite of our parents, the boomer generation. The boomer generation was a large number that was helping, you know, the golden generation, which was a a relatively smaller number. So hence we had, you know, it was a golden era for social democracy and, you know, the welfare system. But now we're heading to a point where I think the welfare system is also going to collapse at some point because, and that's a tr- and then you have say, uh, one person having to look after two elderly people without any government assistance there, mm. without any public help. That puts an immense amount of pressure on that one individual. Yeah, we're gonna. Some countries are going to be better off, 
in this, particularly like I think Australia will be we're we're very lucky in many it's ways. It's hard to it's hard to tell. It's this is something we will face in the twenty thirties and the forties, and you know who knows what climate change will be like then, and what the economy will be like. I don't, I'm not as confident as as you are. I think look, there are just structural factors at play in Australia that will probably mean we will not face as nefarious the consequences as some other countries. But we're certainly entering a period of uh, economic insecurity, of declining populations, declining birth rates, cultural chaos, and who knows? And and who knows what the future is going to look like? And, and And climate change, and there's a lot of things that are very unprecedented and... This is this is true, and look, I don't have no crystal ball, but Australia was one of the. It's it's sort of been preparing for this moment because if you think about it, it's a huge country which with so many resources, the resources that are partly responsible for this climate change as well, but it made a lot of money, so it was able to sustain a smaller population, and still maintain a standard of living that rivals you know any other first world country. That's because most of our money is not coming from us producing that wealth, but it's coming from literally underneath the ground, where we sell it to big markets overseas and we just get that money. And so, you know, we can have characters like, uh, was it Dick Smith? Like the one who says like, the Dick Smith's like, you know, he's a proponent of very small Australia. That wouldn't have been possible. Like we wouldn't have been able to uh, maintain the standard of living if we weren't an extremely resource rich country. China couldn't do that. China produces most of its wealth from actual people putting in the productivity and labor. But if they if they had if let's say they found like trillions of dollars of, you know, um uh, minerals that help the transition of the global economy to clean energy, then they'd be all right. But they don't have that. We have that. We not only did we have coal, iron ore that produced it, but we also have like lithium and bauxite and all the stuff that's going to change that. That's so, true. We've got yeah, we've got a lot of the minerals that are going to be, as far as uh, we can suspect, will be, uh, will have an increased demand in the coming decades. Lithium, I've, I've heard, yeah. is one that they'll use in electric cars a lot. And if uh, countries do decide to move towards nuclear, we do have a lot of uranium. So you're right, we do have a resource base that will ensure some degree of wealth as long as it's managed properly. And and as long as there's <laughs> enough demand overseas. So if yeah. the entire world is going through some horrible phase, then that lithium is not going to matter because not many people are going to be buying electric cars because they're like moving back to like horse cars. So we've got to, we've got to ensure that the world doesn't collapse. As long as there's certain influ uh, like affluent pockets of the world, our population is small enough that we'll be able to sustain ourselves. We don't need to sell to, you know, everyone. We don't have 500 million people to look after. We've got 25 million people. So as long as there's pockets in China, Japan, US that are buying this stuff, I think we'll be fine. Then the other advantage that we have is that our our entire continent is like so rich in terms of renewable energy. So we'll always be energy secure if we adequately invest in renewables. But and let's be real, like the sort of timelines we're talking about, we will. In like 50 years, we'll mm. have renewable. 
So we've got wind energy resources. We've got solar energy resources. If you look at Western Europe, the, Peter Zehan's point, they don't have that. Like Germany has invested so much money into renewables and it doesn't, the sun doesn't shine half of the year in their country. We have places. Yes, where, they're importing Russian gas and have had to stop that and now move towards back to coal at last I heard, or well, have to go to some sort of larger source that isn't renewable. Yeah, it's really, uh, the Ukraine war was not good for the transition because the European, most of these Western European countries, they were trying to transition from coal to gas as an intermediary uh, energy source and then eventually to renewables or nuclear or some other uh, zero carbon way of doing it. And that intermediary phase is completely screwed for them now because they can't get the gas from uh, from Russia well, they still are, by the way. Like, yeah. they're they're importing more gas from Russia than they uh, than any other country is. There's a lot of talk about like India buying Russian stuff, and it's like doesn't even compare to the stuff that Europe is still buying from them. But there is a trend where they're reducing their uh, dependence on it. But as a result, what they're doing is they're just buying oil from Middle East, which has skyrocketed oil prices, or at least has skyrocketed oil prices because. Middle Eastern oil was mostly being supplied to Asia and Russian oil and gas was being supplied to Europe. And all of a sudden, the entire Europe goes, we need oil from Middle East. So then the prices just skyrocketed. So I think the only countries that are really benefiting from all of this is Saudi Arabia. They're making a killing. Yeah. They have huge yeah. demand for all of their they, fossil fuels. And they've said they want to go, uh, they want to be in a green country and by 2030 or something like that. They want to have a green yeah. city. Oh, they're trying to do what we're we're trying to do as well, which is that uh, they've their entire economy is based on oil support. So they're supplying yeah. energy to the world. So they're like, okay, what do we do in like a world where oil is irrelevant? So like, okay, we people still need energy. Most of the countries still aren't going to be able to produce it. So we're going to just export green energy. So they want to stay. They want to keep doing exactly what they're doing, which is supply energy to the world. But they're transitioning to green so that hopefully they can. Send renewable energy, and we're trying to do the yeah. same thing. Which is, and then the source of uh, the far future is nuclear fusion, and the moon is abundant with helium three, and that's why there is going to be a new space race. Mm, I don't know about that. Go on. What's that about? So the space race is going to be uh, because of helium discovery on the moon. Well, there's this particular the way that helium is together. I'm I'm not an expert on this by any yeah, means yeah. at all, but it's abundant on the moon, on the surface mm -hmm. of the moon. So there may be a new space race to see who can like most uh, economically efficiently transport that helium three right. back to uh, well, for nuclear fusion reactors. But that is uh, is still a pipe dream. From what I've heard, nuclear fusion is basically nuclear without the risks, and would be the best source of energy. But I, whenever you talk about this, it's just it creates a, there's yeah. a clusterfuck in the comments. So look, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I've read, no, a, couple, I've read a couple of books. I know a little bit, but I'm sure there are people far more well-versed than I am. Jordan hates nuclear energy. Have you yes, spoken he does. to him about yes, it? Yes, he does. Well, he, I don't know enough to, to have a debate or discussion there. Yeah, uh, and me neither. But he definitely, he... it seems like he knows enough. <laughs> so I'm going to believe him. So I stay off of but. 
it uh, normally speaking like it seems that nuclear is a good option in the sense that it's carbon relatively carbon neutral and it produces a but a but ton of energy so it's but we'll see even moon you talk about like uh, greenland and uh, and antarctica they've got uh, and the arctic they've oh, got really? heaps of resources there which no, would, because yeah. of you know, this is the other advantage that Russia got as a consequence of climate change. You know, the half Arctic, their land's going to become fertile in the turn the, of the century. And not only that, they're they're now they have access to the Arctic Ocean. It was frozen all year round. And now, I heard in another ten years they will have a, they'll have a shipping passage around there. They already do, but like it's it's a bit tough because they break ice as they go. Uh-huh. So they they're the only ones that are navigating it. But um, but uh, today. Three months out of a year, you don't have to break ice every time you go there. Yeah, yeah. And they're suspecting that that's going to become six months a year, which means that, you know, here, here's a whole new ocean that's ready to be discovered. Well, it just depends how, whether the Russian, what will even happen to the Russian state after this war, which has been a disaster. I mean, it's been embarrassing. At the very least, it's been embarrassing. They really should have, in, in the, the sort of mm. might that they've projected, they yeah. should have taken over you good that they haven't but they should have taken over ukraine immediately and they have also a declining uh population massively declining population they're well, well ahead of a lot of the developed countries and now half their men are going to be dead their young met their young fertile men are going to be dead and they all drink themselves to death there's a really bad culture within the country right now as well yeah but as that- far as i'm as far as i've heard and does does you know does Putin still have a grip on power? There's just a lot uh, of questions about the Russian Federation as a nation in the coming years. Look, the population aspect of it is definitely a troubling one, but I think other than that, they're all right. They're yeah. they're I again, this is my personal opinion. I don't think they're suffering nearly as much as people think they are suffering. The alcoholism also exists in Ukraine. So that is definitely an issue, but that's sort of uh, East European issue at this point. So it's not exclusively Russia. So keeping aside the population aspect of it, they're lucky. They, uh, you know how we're lucky? Well, they're, they're also lucky in for certain instances. In, 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 in terms of resources, but the whole economy is structured that there's a handful of oligarchs that basically control all their wealth. Yeah, but they're also not going to collapse because of their resource-based economy. So, like, they're producing oil. And look, case in point, Ukraine war happens. Mm. Immediately, the U.S. pressures the world to put sanctions on uh, Russian oil, including European Union. And what happens is they reduce the uh, – they discount their oil, and then they re, they redirect their entire supply. So instead of it going to Russia, now it's going to China, India, and a lot of these third world countries that would die for Russian oil. So Biden is in no position to go to a defaulting Sri Lanka and say, yo, you cannot buy Russian oil. Sri Lankans would suck a dick for oil right now. They literally have nothing. So they're like, that's your business, dude. I'm going to, if I can buy cheap oil, I'm going to buy cheap oil. And so... And particularly because Middle Eastern oil got so expensive for them because of the war. So Europe is now buying all this Middle Eastern oil, which was being supplied to all of these Asian countries and skyrocketed the price. So they're like, yeah, we're going to buy Russian oil. Like, I'm sorry. So it's just a realignment. It, it's not actually, it's 
Russia isn't yeah. losing heaps on it. That's fair. In terms of gas, it was convenient for them to supply it straight to uh, Europe because of, you know, the, the it just makes economical sense for it to go to Europe because it's so close. But they're going to redirect that too. And they already have. They've shared borders with China. So they, they're, th you can't destroy them because, and the other thing is, okay, fine. Let's say you somehow collapse their entire energy export. What do you need? You need food. You need basic sustenance. Russia is one of the biggest exporters of food in the world. So they're not net importers. They're net exporters. Yeah, they do have the basics covered, energy and food, which is ultimately what you need to they did. What I will, survive. So in terms of survival, which is what they need, right? They So they'll be fine. Now, in terms of the, you, the, the, the blunder yeah. of the Ukraine war itself, the initial operation that Putin launched to take over Kiev like swiftly, he's tried to do like the Mongol method of like, I'm going to show up, everyone's going to be so scared of me that they'll just give in and I'll take over Kiev. That did not happen. And that was a failure on his end. And he definitely got some. But then he recovered. He's now changed his strategy completely. From the last account I read, which was about three weeks ago, uh, Russia is gaining about one to two kilometers of territory a day in Ukraine. Mm. Well, yeah. So this is a long war for them. So they're not going to... Now, let's look at their economy. So... Their economy, after the war, their GDP dropped by minus 10%, which is exorbitant. That's good. That could, that's horrible for any country. That's like survival state. But then they've readjusted the economy, and now they're projecting for the next three to four years, the economy is going to be at minus 1%, 0%, 0%, and then eventually 1% again. Now, this is not bonanza growth, but you can sustain yourself with it. Compare that to the rest of the world, where because of the recession, their economy has dwindled too, including ours. So our GDP growth rate has dropped as well. So this a, was this a big 4D chess move to, to make every other country go into a recession while Russia has a short-term pain and then I think, ends up with the territory half the territory of Ukraine and um, back to square one? He couldn't have chosen a better timing to do it. Okay. He could have chosen a better strategy to do it. Coronavirus and the aftermath of it means that every country in the world is fiscally constrained and dealing with inflation. And when you tell them, oh, Russia has just invaded Ukraine, can you spend an extra 3% of your budget into your militaries? That hurts them. So uh, Europe, on one hand, is spending uh, an extra 3 to 4% of their GDP on arms and, and, and developing their military to combat the new Russian threat which is bad. However, he's making them do it when they're in a recession. It's already triggered a recession. And Europe is, I think the, uh, the only, Western Europe is one of the only first world countries that's already in a recession. So we're projecting that we're about to get into one. Mm. The US is on the verge of it. Europe already is in one because of, you know, this drastic thing that's happened. So now at a time when they're losing money, they're having to spend extra money, find extra money somehow to build this military. So, yeah, it's, look, I'm, I'm not thinking it was a good move by him. Like any country that invades another country based on power, just his idea was like, I'm stronger than you, so I'm going to do it. I don't like the idea that you're siding with the US and I think that you don't have the right to make that decision, so I'm going to invade you. So that's, I'm not defending that. But I'm just saying in terms of like, it's it's a good time for him to do it.
And it seems like this is this is going to be a long war, but it seems like, you know, eventually at some point Russia will take control of Ukraine. All of it. Maybe maybe not all of it, maybe not the 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 western parts of it, but enough for them to safeguard their what they call their national security interests, which is to create the buffer from western Europe. So they'll achieve which which sucks, dude, cuz like this could have been avoidable. Everyone's to blame in this. It, it, Russia certainly is to blame, but so is the West. That kept baiting Ukraine to join NATO, to join European Union. Okay, European Union is fine. That's an economic thing. You can argue. But like when you're telling Russia's neighbor, like immediate land border neighbor to join NATO, you were just provoking the bear. Like that's what mm. happened there. Well, who were the, you know, who were the, uh politicians that were pushing for that were they in the pocket of uh, arms dealers they were do uh, they want that because then then you know they get to the weapons manufacturers in america if there is a war with russia this proxy war or whatever or even a direct war one day this is why i don't trust people in power there's all these conflicting interests. Look, there's definitely that. There's there would be certain uh, uh, certain cogs of the military industrial complex that benefits greatly. Even now in Europe, there's a lot of money being spent into defense, and there's people making money off of it too. But I think the larger point for it was that this was a geopolitical move for the U.S. that felt that you know, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia wasn't able to recover. The same way that you know the height of the Soviet Union was completely different to what Russia Federation is now, and they were like, "They're too weak. We can we can go there," and they did. They kept slowly taking uh, countries that were part of the old Soviet or the old Russian uh, sphere, and they kept taking a little bit of it. They would give them cards. They would say like, "Okay, you'll be part of the European Union. You'll get guaranteed security." There were benefits from it that Russia couldn't compete with. Because Russia wasn't as economically strong, mm. and they and they thought that they could take they they could take, uh, control Ukraine, and that would help them with a potential war with China, which is a genuine economic uh, power too. So they just baited Ukraine. They gave them false hopes that they were going to defend them in case Russia attacked, and when Russia did attack, they didn't want to get involved directly because no one wants to have a nuclear war with Russia. So now, as Ukrainians who are left to deal with this. For, for probably years from now. Because some... Uh, look, every country has the right to decide their future. There's, I'm not saying that that's not the case. Like, we should be able to decide what happens to our country. Ukraine should be able to decide what happens to their country. And if they want to decide to join with European Union instead of Russia, they should be able to. But the reality is that some countries don't have that right. Some countries are too small to do it. If Singapore today tries to say that, you know... We're going to mess with China. They have the right to do it, but should they do it? Surely the Ukrainians and the, their intelligence could have suspected by them aligning themselves with NATO and America and continuing the bonds there. They were risking a Russian invasion. Did they just not think that risk was as pronounced as it clearly was? No, they knew. They 100% knew. They know their country a lot more than most other countries know them, but... The thing is, when these Cold Wars happen, so you had like the American and European influence and then you had the Russian influence. When this Cold War happens, before there's a war, there's years of dividing the community because you're looking for allies. So Western Ukraine 
was completely dominated by people that love European Union and wanted to be part of, you know, the the influence. They wanted to they wanted their cities to be like Brussels and they but then you had the Eastern Ukrainians that felt that they were very much Russian and they've always historically been part of Russia and they don't want to be part of uh, NATO. And both these giant superpowers were using these communities that were sympathetic to them to fight with each other. So before Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukraine was fighting with with Ukraine for a long time. Well, was Ukraine not acting in their best interest where they couldn't afford to remain neutral anymore after what happened in Crimea where they had to align themselves with NATO or America or they just risk continued degradation of their territory to Russia? Look, there's an argument for that. Like that argument is made with Australia too. Like, you know, we can't side with, uh, we can't be neutral with America and China. Uh, so you have to choose a side. I don't think that was the case for Ukraine. They could have, as long as they didn't join or they didn't say that they were going to join NATO, I think this could have been avoided. They could have, they, they could have extracted benefits from both sides. Short of like giving that security guarantee that if Russia in future was to invade Ukraine, they would be in a direct conflict with the US and European Union. If that would have been avoided, I think the Ukraine war itself could have been avoided too. But when you're in like in the midst of civil war, where West U Ukraine, Ukrainians hate Eastern Ukrainians, sometimes better sense doesn't prevail. Mm. All right, well, well, let's finish on, on China and the... Um potential ramifications of the current economic crisis they're facing, as well as the likelihood of a war with America, or whether it will be a proxy war uh, somewhere in the Southeast Asian Sea or whether they'll invade Taiwan. The last I've heard, they're not... They Well, when Pelosi visited, their rhetoric, as it always is, was very strong, very militaristic, and then they didn't do anything, as is always the case, because they're probably very mathematical and... I don't think they're like those Russian and American leaders. They're going to think everything through and have a 10 to 20 to 30 year plan about everything they do. But they want to project an image of strength, not only just to the world, but to their population. But with all these banking crises going on now, what are they going to do? Are they going to crack down on dissent? Are they going to collapse economically? Or is it just a roadblock and... They'll just restructure the uh, property development industry there and everything will go back to normal. Yeah, look, again, I this is so difficult to predict. But what I do know is that it's a lot harder for them to invade Taiwan than it was for Russia to invade Ukraine. Yeah. Not only is there the aspect of this is going to be the most, the biggest amphibious assault in the history of the world, but then they're also surrounded by U.S. bases. So if they do this and the U.S. actually decides to go into this war, they could get their ass kicked. Uh, could, potentially. So, which is, but, but one thing that might force them to do it is if the U.S. tries to do what they did with Ukraine, which is try to make some kind of an alliance with Taiwan where they guarantee their security against China. In which case, China will probably invade Taiwan. Well, they're poking the bear with the visits. What's their name, Dan? They are, but like this is somewhat symbolic a little bit. Okay, it's true that 
It's true that Nancy Pelosi is the highest ranking official to have gone to Taiwan in, I don't know, like 25, 30 years. But there's no change in policy from the U.S. government. Yeah. They still believe in a one-China policy, and China knows that. The reason why China sort of got freaked out by this is because not because of um, Xi Jinping personally being outraged by it, but the Chinese population. There's, you know, how we have these cultural social media flare-ups where certain things become pretty intense. It happens in China, too. In China, Weibo was going... They were... They thought there was going to be a, an act of war. They thought there they? was going to be. Yeah. So there was his, his this the, the timing of Pelosi's visit was particularly bad because uh, Xi has to like uh, resit for this their version of like a confidence motion, which is going to happen in three months. So uh, so Xi was already in like election campaigning mode, and just then Pelosi comes and the entire social media of China wants to give an answer to the U.S. for this. A horrible thing that they're doing which is going to taiwan and like rehatching this wound you know it's all melodramatic shit from them and it's all cultural reasons so they they had to do this drill to simulate it but it was mostly for their own domestic audience honestly rather than for for us to like look at it and be like scared about it so i don't i don't think that china is planning on invading taiwan any soon is my guess however if you know it comes to a point where the the aggression between China and U.S. reaches to a point where U.S. now guarantees security of tai Taiwan, like Peter Dutton wants to do in Australia, then there will be an invasion and then we'll go into a war with China, just like the Ukraine one. And we'll be dragged into it because it's too close to us, unlike the Ukraine one. Will it mainly be a naval war? It, it will be a naval <coughs> war. It's going to be because right now we're in a Mexican standoff. So yeah. if you look at like... um the 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 chinese east coast is completely surrounded by us naval bases the the reason why they care about taiwan so much people think it's the semiconductor industry that that's part of it but it's more so that taiwan is scared that if they have a war with the us they're going to get encircled because of those uh all of those countries surrounding the the the, the south china sea their only way to avoid it is somehow before they get attacked, they can escape into the greater ocean and then come back and encircle the U.S. And so they've tried to set bases in Africa, in uh, in Pakistan, and in Sri Lanka that are far away from the 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 coast of China to be able to encircle the U.S. in if if it happens, which is a Mexican standoff. The U.S. says we'll kill you if you do this because you're surrounded, and China says yeah, but I'm surrounded here, but you're surrounded from the periphery. And so, like, you know, everyone's just got a gun to their head and saying that if you pull the trigger, I'll pull the trigger. And it seems like everyone could die in this situation. And all it takes is all those military exercises they're running, these planes, they're yeah. one that gets shot down, one yeah. that accidentally one, it, flies it, somewhere. It could flare up from start, that. That will start it. But China wouldn't want to do it. And I think because of the point that you mentioned, they are going through some serious economic transitions themselves. Yeah. So they've realized that China's China's economy was based on extreme exports. The way you get rich is you keep selling stuff to the world. If you don't have these these oil or these resources, then you sell anything that they would want and just try to be better at producing all of this stuff. And so now they're because the entire world is kind of apprehensive of China's growth. They decided that, you know, this export driven model is not going to work for us in the long term because if people stop buying our shit, then we make our economy vulnerable. 
And so they're trying to create a, a domestic consumer demand, kind of like the, the US economy is, which is that, you know, if the rest of the world kind of goes to shit, they face some problems, but they'll be largely all right because they've got a huge consumer base in their country so they can produce themselves and sell it to their own people. China is looking to do that. But one of the problems, one of the byproducts of this is, is that their, um, their housing infrastructure model, which was based on government giving tons of money to property developers to keep producing apartments and buildings and, like Sydney. and roads, but turbocharged to the point where Chinese banks would give loans to Chinese nationals to buy properties overseas. Yeah, so there'd be many apartments in, in Sydney that would be bought by Chinese people from Chinese bank loans. And properties that were planned to be built in sometimes half a decade. Half, and they did do it. it. But then this all was based on the idea, because the money was being injected by the government, this was all based on the idea that the property the property prices going. will keep growing. And so people have bought giant apartment buildings that do not exist. They'll come into existence in two years' time. And as Evergrande and these others are facing financial difficulty, they're not guaranteeing the uh, the existence of the apartments or they're, say, or they're just continually delaying it. And now, last I heard, there are a lot of residents who are refusing to just pay the mortgage. Yeah. Because they were based on extremely unfavorable terms. It was based for a, for a market that was growing. It was based on a market that was constant. The money was constantly being injected by the government. It kept growing. Export economies were buying stuff from China. And so it was all based on that. And now, because of this realignment, which they intended to do themselves, it started in 2015, 2016, where now the, the property market is going down. And hence, all of this debt-based growth is just collapsing it's like the gfc exactly like the gfc but my question to for all those people that say that china would collapse is did u.s collapse as a result of the gfc i don't think so so i no. don't think china will collapse no. either it was significant it was transformative but yeah i, I don't I, it won't collapse it's a different situation but but it time will, will tell but it is it is uh it is about to get into a recession which is Pretty weird for China, which hasn't seen a recession since the freaking 90s, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, that's a good time to leave it. That was a good little, uh, good little discussion of geopolitics today. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed special guest Ali. Thanks, and guys. Jordan Thanks Will. For check out the Friendly Geordies podcast. Oh, yeah, of course. If, uh, if you... Unless, if you already uh, listen to it or watch it, then that's good. But if you don't, check it out. Uh, it's me, Miss Love, and Jordan. We do a podcast together. Yeah, and uh, Jordan will be back next week, most likely. Most likely. What happens? He will be. He'll be. He'll be yeah, back. To his schedule. Uh, he could be uh, dead by some bikies. Bikies. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a brave video. Um, Pretend. <laughs> people might be pretending to be bikies. Oh, he's he's oh. in a lot, he, dude. So there's he, more. There's more info coming out. Neil, when I when we're sitting in the studio, when we're doing the pod, and I, or just generally when I'm with Jordan, and I hear a knock, it could be anyone. It could be the editor coming in. Both of us get genuinely scared. Really? Yeah. He should be more so. He is scared more so. But like, 
man's taking too many. He's making too many enemies. <laughs> it's getting insane. Brave man. But support him. He's yeah, genuinely no, he's... doing it for the right reasons. I promise you. So support him if you can. Uh, I saw that video and I agreed with a lot of the top comments. This guy needs a bodyguard or something. Yeah. This is just. Uh... Having said that, I feel like that kind of audience would not be watching Friendly Geordies. <laughs> they're watching Spanion. Maybe they watch some of my videos now and again. They don't. They wouldn't understand it. You, you, you'd have penetration. Fuck, is this fucking nerd talking about? <laughs> what has he got my photo in there? What's he saying? Is it good or bad? I don't know. It seems good. Oh, see. Have you right. have you met Spanion? Do you do you know him? I actually think Spanion is de deceptively smart. In some of his videos, there's a you know, there's an inkling of wisdom there. Dude, he is smart. He's, I've seen too much of him. I'm a fan. Yeah. No, he's an interesting man. I've never met him, no. I've, he follows me. It's cool. But he, he's in it. I saw his um have you seen Gary Gary Jublin's pot crime podcast? No. He's an ex detective from New South Wales Police Force that did uh was fired. There's a whole story. He has his own reasons as why it was unfairly fired, but he was fired nonetheless. And he started this podcast where he gets like uh, ex-criminals, gang leaders, uh, oh, police officers, and it's all based on. And so Spanion came on that. And uh, and so ever since I saw that, funnily enough, Jordan had already done a podcast with him, but I hadn't seen it. And I saw that and I was and I went deep into Spanion <laughs> rabbit hole. Yeah, uh, yeah, very, very interesting, man. Super interesting, and yeah. and actually, you're right, deceptively smart. Yeah, yeah. You need to be a high end criminal, you you know, can't be dumb, oh. especially if you're one of the ones organizing it all. But anyway, I think this is a good time to end this one. Thank you again, Ali. Very much appreciated, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>